so that you may believe and by believing may have life in his name. You, that you may believe. The gospel is for you. Oftentimes we think the gospel is for those unbelievers out there. They, they, they don't know the Lord. Well, yes, it's good news for them. It's good news for us. The gospel's for you, Christian. It's for everyone. But it's especially for ordinary everyones, wherever you may be. Ordinary everyones. Part of John's emphasis on this ordinary everyone. We, we know this is an emphasis for him. Is that the friends of Jesus who became his witnesses were ordinary. Much has been made about this. They were fishermen. And the location of this, where this gospel closes. By the Sea of Galilee. It's very close to the same place where the whole account began just south of the Sea of Galilee, by the River Jordan. Even more notably, it's with pretty much the same small group with which the gospel began, that group of Galilean fishermen. When we know that other things could have been said, we should pay special attention to what actually has been said. So all of the gospel writers could have included all sorts of things, but they included certain things. John's last sentence in the whole book reminds us of this. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. He could have said all sorts of other things, but he chose to present under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, certain things. He could, have, he could have concluded this account with Jesus' appearances in Jerusalem. He could have concluded it with detailed conversations um, there in the upper room. He could have concluded with an appearance to over 500 people at one time. He could have ended with the ascension. All of these were options. But he ends with Peter and Thomas. Nathaniel, with John himself and his brother James and two others, don't know who those were, talking with Jesus. At least half of that group was there with John the Baptist. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Back when Jesus began his ministry, back chapter 1, when John the Baptist announced, this guy is the Messiah. You remember, right? These young guys, they've been disciples of John the Baptist, and the Messiah is announced. There he is. There's the Christ. And they had timidly walked, kind of following Jesus. Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? He's, he must, he's the guy. And then Jesus turns suddenly. We covered this, right? And there's that moment. The Messiah, the Christ, the one whom God had anointed as king of his people, turns to them. They're just trying to see what he's going to do. And he turns to them, these young guys from Galilee, and he says, what 
do you want? What can I do for you? And that, that theme from the opening pages of the Gospel of John, he's reminded us that the eternal Son, the Word made flesh, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made, has come to simple people. People that smell. Who want to know Him. And He has invited them to come be with Him. Come be with me. It's with those same notes of Christ choosing simple people and joining them in their ordinary lives that John closes the gospel account. It's so fitting, this frame. Sometime in the 40-day period after the resurrection and before the ascension, before he ascends to the Father, the disciples have gone back to their homes. They've gone back to fish. Probably they need to earn some money. They're going to be going to the Feast of Pentecost. They've been gone from home for weeks and weeks. No income. They go back to fish a little. Back to the boats, back to the nets, back to the stink. Back to the briskness of a morning on the lake. Nice, it's nice. They come out before dawn. They watch as the sky slowly lightens. But it's been a slow morning. They've been out there. No fish. They've been here before. And then some fella on the shore calls out the thing no fisherman wants to hear. Have you caught anything? <laughs> How's it going? If you haven't, you don't want them to know that because they're about to give you some advice. Fishermen, right? So annoying! And that's exactly what happens. <laughs> the boats are drifting. They're drifting parallel to the shore. And the, the way they fish, you drop down nets in the back or, or the oars and drift in. It drives the fish towards the shore. And that's, you cast the nets then into that decreasing space the, the, into the shallows. And now this guy on the shore gives the absurd advice, cast on the, on the other side, on the right side of the boat, in the deep water where you've already been, where there's almost certainly no fish. It'd be rude not to take the advice. It's an honor-shame culture. Okay. <laughs> and they toss it back. And you know what happens. The nets are full. This has happened before. John, the light goes on. This is the kind of weird, strange thing that happens when the Lord is around. This is, Jesus brings these things to happen. And then comes one of my favorite little moments in all of the gospel accounts. Peter, Peter jumps off and he swims ashore. The other disciples dragging the nets full, 153. Interesting detail, right? 153 fish. And they come in and there is Jesus cooking breakfast. What, what a delightful moment. Breakfast with Jesus by the lake. That's what I want. What could be better? It is just the touch of simple tenderness. Breakfast with Jesus. And the risen sun invites these beloved friends 
friends, come have breakfast. That's actually enough, right? The gospel could end right there. What, what a wonderful note, that message. The risen Lord, he's prepared an eternal feast for us. Here's a foretaste. We could end it there, John. And The delight of foretastes, of fellowship with the Lord, prefiguring, wetting our appetite for the feast, for the everlasting storytelling that's going to happen, glorifying what he's done, how he's changed us, just to be with him that we might know him better. That'd be a good end. But that's not how the gospel concludes. There's another message. This meal sets it up. It's part of it. So these disciples haul in the 153 fish, and Jesus says, bring some of the fish you caught. And they come up. He's already got the fish sizzling. There's bread baking. The Lord created cooking. He's bound to be a good cook. This is, this is going to be good. But more importantly, he doesn't need the fish that he's invited them to bring. Right? He, he put the fish into their nets. The fish that he's cooking, he made them. The bread. This is the Jesus who created countless loaves and fish to feed 5,000, to feed 4,000. He's the one who provides, but he wants them to join him in what he's doing. Bring some of those over there. Bring some of those. He's got their needs thoroughly covered, but he invites them to contribute what they've hauled in. Contribute. After breakfast, Jesus, Peter, and John go for a walk. It's an incredibly significant moment for Peter. You remember Peter had denied Jesus three times on the night of the betrayal, the night of the trial. Three times, and he realized with piercing clarity that Jesus knew it. He told him it was going to happen, and then at the last denial and the cock crows, and Jesus looks at him. And now Jesus gives three opportunities to affirm his renewed intention to love with loyalty. Three opportunities. You've probably heard many sermons about that. It's significant. The Lord has many reasons for relating this episode. You know, countless Christians have been encouraged by Peter's restoration. Encouraged by, in the face of our own weaknesses, in the face of our own betrayals, our tendencies to deny the Lord, to betray him. He knows. He knows what we're made of. He knows our tendencies. And yet he loves us and he wants us to be with him. He wants to heal. As Isaiah said, he has seen. He will heal. 
even more particularly. He knows, he knows those particular places of our unfaithfulness. Those are the painful spots, the places that even right now, if we were to call them to mind, we would be uncomfortable. He knows those. The exact words that we have said, the things we did. But even there, his holiness will reach. He restores Peter, who denied him in the face of his death. And like, like Peter's fear for his own life, that our tendency, that place in us, that is, he will work his glory there. He will glorify himself in our weakness. He will glorify himself in our betrayal because he will look at it and he will say, I love you. Now love me. That's certainly true. But Peter's experience is here for us. It's here for us to see something more of God. But as the conclusion to a gospel, it's, it's more than that. The conversation is included as part of the, the whole conclusion with a single concluding message that this final episode is communicating. God doesn't need us to accomplish what he has set out to do with the world. The salvation that he has secured, he, he doesn't need us to accomplish that but he invites us to be part of it. Readers of John's gospel through the centuries have received this invitation. It's been communicated for 2,000 years now. Christ Jesus did not need an overconfident, illiterate fisherman with a strong sense of self-preservation. He did not need Peter. He didn't need that Galilean crew to announce his rule in Jerusalem. In fact, none of them had ever added anything to his healing of the blind, the lame, the leprous. And that had been abundantly clear throughout his ministry again and again. And again that morning, he provided the fish and the bread. We don't contribute to our saving any more than a drowning person can contribute to their saving. Christ, our God, is our Savior. And with chapter 20, John, John had concluded that life and salvation are offered through Jesus Christ. They're offered through placing our trust in Him. But the, the gospel concludes with an invitation to participate in that. So the message had been well established. We have life by believing in his name. But this gospel concludes with, and he invites us to participate in the kingdom he's bringing about. Peter has nothing to give except what Jesus gives him. And he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter has no resources to do that. In himself, he, 
He has no resources any more than he can fill his own net with fish. And yet Jesus says, feed them, tend them, feed them. Peter stands in here. He's a representative. He's a representative for us. Yes, he is being restored to his place as a leader, as an apostle. Yes. But he's a representative of every ordinary follower of Jesus. Ordinary people like us. And we get the same invitation. That's why it's here. We get the invitation. Jesus says, do you love me? And if we want to love him, like Peter wants to love him, he says to us to serve the family. Serve the family. Love and giving, they are inextricably linked together throughout the Gospel of John, as well as in his epistles. Love and giving always go together. In John 1, he came to his own to give himself. His own did not receive him. They didn't want the gift. But as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And from his fullness, we've all received his gift. Gift upon gift. Grace upon grace. The most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Because he loved, he gave himself. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To the woman at the well, you remember John 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you streams of living water. John 6, the bread of God is he who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. I am the bread of life. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Because the Father loves me, he gives. He gives to me. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. The Father shows love for the Son by giving, them, giving him a people. And then very succinctly, John states in his first letter, this is love. If you had any doubt about it, if you didn't understand the gospel, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is love. He gave his son. In that way, we also ought to love one another. So God has shown us through Jesus that love is the giving of self. That's love. 
even before the world was created. This isn't just a part of the, the earthly creation. The Father gave joy and delight to the Son. That's their relationship. The Son gave joy and delight to the Father. They have their existence in giving to one another. The world then was a gift from the Father to the Son. And then from the Son to the Father as He was the means of its creation. And when the world fell from goodness, God returned life to the world by love. Because when self-giving is from God, it brings salvation and life. What I'm saying here, what am I saying here? The gospel of John finishes by building on Christ's salvation with the further insight that we his people are invited to have his self-giving love flowing through us. His self-giving love flowing through us to ourselves? No. To others. His self-giving love flows through us to others. That is principally how we love God. Do you love me, Jesus asks. Peter, us. Do you love me? Do you want to grow in love for me? Do you want to have my love coursing through you? Do you want to experience the love of God? Then give of yourself to others. As he has loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me get practical. The lambs and the sheep that God has given to you are the people of your own flock. That means your two households. It's the households you live with, and it's the household of faith. So do you love God and want to grow in love for Him? Then give of yourself and serve the people you live with. Serve the people that your life intersects with. If you're single, your life intersects with people. Serve them. But even in our own homes, this is not our default. This is not the time for you to now think about other people. Talking about, this is what I prayed about. This is you I'm talking about. Me. We don't want to give at cost to ourselves. By nature, by nature, we might serve if it gives us some leverage. By nature, we might serve to manipulate or to establish some kind of give and take we're thinking of ourselves. By nature, in our homes, we want to sit on the couch. And when we serve, we want it back in return. We expect it back in return. And if we do not get it, we're upset. It's only from God 
that we can give of ourselves at cost to ourselves. The power to do that comes only from God. It's his character that allows that. It's agape, self-giving love. To give at cost to ourselves simply for the good of a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. When we're tired, when we're irritated, when we're tired, there's a tyranny of self-love. Right? It, it, we are ruled by it, and it demands that we be served. It's right that I be served now, and that we serve ourselves. And it, it's in that moment, it's in the tiredness, it's in the irritation, it's in that soil that agape can grow. That's how it grows. Adversity, struggle, discomfort. When we're pressed, when we're stressed, when we're weighed down, that's the soil in which the love of God grows. It's not when we're feeling our best. It's not when we're feeling great. Because then, as you know, we stand up, I feel, yeah, I, I'm, I feel good. I'm going to serve you, and you're going to notice it. When we feel good, right, that, that's echoing. You're going to notice. Parents, do you want your kids to know how to love? Don't think that you can just model it. This might be counterintuitive. You can't just model love and expect that your fallen little monsters are going to pick up on that. If you give and give to your kids, but you don't give them an opportunity to serve the family, you're just feeding their self-life. They want to worship themselves. They want the world to revolve around them. If you just feed that, if you just give and give to them, you're just affirming their fallenness. That they're the center of the world. Do you notice that you have a selfish child? If you notice, man, I don't know what is up, why this one seems so selfish. Give him or her an opportunity to serve the family. To experience, to taste love. To give for the good of the family especially if it's unpleasant for them. They need to taste the goodness of giving. Otherwise, how will they know it? You're inviting the child into the identity of God's household, inviting him or her into the character of God, which is to give and to love. Our family resemblance, if we have any family resemblance, that's what it's supposed to be. Having agape, self-giving love. I'm concluding. John drives home in the gospel, he drives it home in his letters, that you can't love God all on your own. Love requires self-giving. It requires serving. Therefore, it requires 
others. And we will only truly love those that we serve. We will only love those that we serve. We will only love those that we serve. And if you serve only yourself, you will love only yourself. So serving requires a household, whether it's people you live with or whether you share the life of God with. If you find yourself cold towards God, or cold towards his people, hear what Jesus instructs. Serve someone without thought of return. And your love will grow because you're exercising it. The only truly joyful people that I've known, maybe you know some others, but are people who pour out their lives for the good of others. Pour it out, and they, they exude joy. John ends his gospel with this conversation. It's an illustration. He's showing it. But it's illustrating a point that he makes again and again, and he makes it profoundly in his first letter. Beloved, let us love one another. For love, self-giving love, agape, is from God. And everyone who loves in this way is born of God and knows God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. If we give, if we serve, he abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Do you want to grow in love? Love for God and love for others? Serve. Father, you know what we are made of. You know the habitual path of our minds that takes us into justification, into excusing ourselves, into blaming the people we live with and worship with. Lord, have mercy. Would you give us of your grace to serve when it's hard, to give when we don't want to, to give to those we don't want to give to, to give when there's no thought of exchange and return. Lord, would you take us out of the economy of the world and into the everlasting economy? In Jesus' name.